Well, go ahead and open your Bible to the book of 2 Peter. If you are visiting or if you've been coming maybe a few weeks or so, we've been studying the book of 2 Peter. And uh, this evening, as I prayed, we're going to start the final chapter. And that'll take us all the way until the end of the semester. We'll have a couple messages that are not in 2 Peter, but um, the goal is to finish this book this semester. Somebody texted me this week, everyone has a price. Everyone has a price. And usually that statement is made in the context of questioning somebody's integrity, essentially alluding that for the right amount of money, you can lead someone to question or maybe compromise their character, their integrity, their convictions. One of the people who like to use that phrase and really made it famous is Pablo Escobar. How many of you don't know who Pablo Escobar is? One person. All right. Three, no, two, three. All right. There's more of you. Four. More? Can we get to five? Five. All right. Somebody's in. Okay. Pablo Escobar. Very famous drug trafficker. Colombian drug king. He founded the Medellin cartel. And he's been called the king of cocaine. In his time in the 80s and into the early 90s, he was the most famous drug trafficker in the world. At his peak, he was worth $37 billion. In today's value, about $100 billion. He would make the top 10 richest people in the world today if he was alive today. And his approach to that criminal world was plata o plomo, silver or lead. In other words... You either take my money and do what I'm asking you to do, or you get the bullet. Plata o o plomo. He's known for being ruthless, killing policemen, killing politicians, even regular civilians. At one point, he's been accused of blowing up a plane and killing 100 people because one of the people he was trying to influence was on that plane and wouldn't budge to his demands. He died at the age of 44, as he was fleeing the police. And this is a famous statement that he would say, everyone has a price. The important thing is to find out what it is. Everyone has a price. The important thing is to find out what it is. Now, this maxim precedes Pablo Escobar. Some people trace it back to 1734 to a man named Sir Robert Walpole. Sir Robert Walpole wrote and spoke about his colleagues in the parliament, who he accused of being corrupt. And so he said, no one is immune to corruption. All men have their price. I'm sure you've heard that statement before, that all men have a price. And for a certain amount of money, you can oftentimes lead a person to compromise and to get them to do what you want them to do. The most recent expression of this maxim is the Admissions scandal from 2019. You guys remember that, right? The admissions scandal in the elite schools like Yale and Stanford and Georgetown and USC and UCSD and Wake Forest. And there's a few more. Coaches took bribes from wealthy individuals in order to allow their kids to circumvent some of the expectations of the application process. And therefore, they allowed them to go to school I think what made it super famous is Lori Loughlin, right? The actress from Full House. 53 people were charged in that scandal. More than 750 families. That's how many people were part of this thing. 750 families, and they paid $25 million cumulatively in seven years, from 2011 to 2018. The man who is the mastermind behind all this is William Rick Singer from Newport Beach. He's now facing up to 65 years in prison and a fine of a million and $250,000. He's currently out on bail, and I think his sentencing is coming soon. And the entire scheme, the whole scandal was rooted in this principle. What would you pay to get your child into your dream college? What are you willing to pay? And some people made a, paid a lot of money. Everyone has a price. That's the general statement that overshadows corruption in this world. Do you have a price? Judas Iscariot had a price. 
Joseph's 11 brothers had a price. Rachel and Leah had a price as they fought over access to Jacob. Esau had a price. Even some of the heroes in the Bible had a price. And they were willing to do whatever they needed to for a certain amount of money. Do you have a price that would tempt you away from faithfulness? From living a godly life? From living according to the word of God? What is that price? Is it in the millions? Is it in the hundreds of thousands? Is it in the tens of thousands? What would cause you to walk away and pursue a life of godlessness, a life of immorality, to actually pursue your lusts? You see, as we enter the final chapter of 2 Peter, this is on Peter's mind. Because in verse 16 of chapter 3, which is kind of the culmination of this chapter, this is what he says in the middle of the verse. The people who are perverted... They pervert scripture to their own destruction. You, therefore, in verse 17, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that there's those who pervert, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. You be on your own guard so that nobody can sway you away from being steadfast, and we've talked about the main point of this book is godliness. In other words, being steadfast in pursuit of godliness. You see, as Peter writes this final chapter, he's beginning to think about the people he's writing to, the people that are fleeing for their lives, the people that are being persecuted. In the first book, he encouraged them to understand that it's possible to have the good life in Christ, even though persecution surrounds them. And in the second chapter, he says, in that context, make sure that you do not jeopardize godliness, that you can't have the good life because you're connected to Christ, because you have a community of the saints that you have relationships in, and because you live a life that is attractive to the people that are watching your life, and you become a proclaimer, a herald of the excellencies of Christ. But in that environment, you are to live godly in a way that pleases the Lord. And as Peter focuses on this, that nobody will carry you away. Nobody entices you. Nobody pulls you away, that word only appears two other times in the New Testament. And at both times, it appears in the context of association. Who do you associate with? That's the context of that word. Romans 12, 16 and Galatians 2, 13. You see, association with certain individuals can pull you away from what is right and what is true. You think of Psalm 1, right? Do not walk, do not stand, and then do not sit among the wicked. Because that's all it takes. You pass, then you slow down, you stop, and then ultimately you sit down. It's association. And so Peter wants to pull us back and say, make sure you understand who do you associate with because that can cause you to actually jeopardize your godliness. And there will be a price that you're willing to pay because of the benefits that you perceive. He's concerned that you would not be led astray. How can this happen? Why would Peter say that after devoting an entire chapter to describing a profile of the ungodly? Why would the ungodly ever be attractive to us? This is a reminder from two weeks ago. This is the profile of the ungodly. So why in the world would this be attractive to anybody who's a true believer? They're characterized by arrogance, brutishness, debauchery, always fulfilling their lusts. Their heart is filled with greed. They are liars. They are ungodly. They are lawless. They are unrighteous. They have anarchy that they pursue. They blaspheme. They tempt others to sin. They're hypocrites. They are enslaved to sin. And so they are damned in chapter 2, verse 14. So what in the world would draw us to that kind of an individual or that kind of a lifestyle? Well, Consider for a moment two Psalms in the Old Testament. Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. Easy way to remember it, if you ever need to remember. Psalm 37 and Psalm 
37 and 73. Psalm 37 is written by David, the man after God's own heart. Psalm 73 is written by the sons of Korah, who were the worship leaders in the temple. So we're talking about individuals who wrote the psalm who were godly and devoted their life to pursuing godliness and leading others toward godliness and towards the worship of God. And listen, actually go there because I do want to point out a couple verses in each of these Psalms to help you understand that even the best of the best can be tempted toward godlessness. And therefore, Peter's challenge at the end of chapter 3 isn't futile. That we should consider ourselves and whether we are ever tempted away from godliness. And if we have a price that we're willing to pay. Psalm 37 is written by David. It's, it's really a person who is in turmoil as he watches the lives of the ungodly. And this is what he writes. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. In other words, there are people who are envious and they're fretting because of the way the evil are living. They will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Herb, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the moon day. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. That's the attraction. They are prospering. And so the Christian begins to fret and become disgruntled and discontent in his or her life because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. In other words, the Christian actually becomes angry and wrathful because he's comparing his life with the non-believing life. And he wants the unbeliever's life. Do not, oh, verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off. That's judgment. That's chapter 2 of Second Peter. But those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more and you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land. The second time he talks about inheritance and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees his days coming. Judgment. They have judgment. The wicked drew a sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needed to slay those who are pride in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Verse 17, the arms of the wicked will be broken. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. He delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. What a beautiful picture of God sustaining and holding on intimately to his child. But that statement is in the context of the believer doubting God, not trusting God, which is why David says, trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord. And he's not only talking to the people around him, he's talking to himself. The Psalms are a reflection of their own confusion, of their own frustration. And he says, verse 27, depart from evil, do good, and you will abide forever. Verse 35, here's the draw. I have seen a wicked, violent man spread himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Prosperity. Then he passed away. And lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity. But the transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Do you see the draw? Is that sometimes we're tempted to look at the life of the unbeliever and their prosperity, and we want that. And we forget to trust in the Lord and delight ourselves in the Lord. Go to Psalm 73. In verse 3. 
This again, these are the worshipers in the temple, the leaders, the pastors of music. I was envious of the arrogant, they confess, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fed. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. That sounds a lot like Second Peter chapter 2, doesn't it? Arrogance, mockery, blasphemy. Therefore, his people will return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. That's their frustration. If I see these people succeeding and being prosperous and being fat and getting whatever they want, why am I keeping my heart pure? Why am I pursuing godliness? They just keep getting better and better, getting more and more. Nothing can stop them. Remember, these are the worship leaders confessing their frustration and mistrust of God. The draw to godlessness. That's what they're confessing. And then in verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In other words, in those times when I'm tempted to imitate the godless, I'm like a beast. My heart is embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken a hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We sing this psalm. This is the contest of this song. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. If you think that you are too resilient, to be drawn away from Christ, from living the godly life, then I encourage you to pause and be a little bit more honest with yourself. Because even David and the sons of Korah, and then Peter picks up this dilemma and prays and charges the Christians in the first century, do not be led astray by the godless. Do not desire their success because ultimately they will be judged. They will be destroyed. And it's in this context of this kind of a concern that Peter expresses toward the end of the book that we find chapter three as the focus of tonight's message. Because ultimately this, the theme is the same, pursue godliness. If verse 17 says, do not be carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, then the question is, how do I remain steadfast? What will it take for me to remain steadfast as a Christian and not be drawn away? And so tonight we're going to look at the first seven verses in answering this question. Second Peter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, 
that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. We just read about mockers. Following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And starting chapter three, we're entering the fourth main division of this little book. We talked about in chapter one, the first 15 verses, the call to pursue the godly life, the pursuit of the godly life. Then in the second half of chapter one, Peter talks about the power for the godly life being the word of God. Then in chapter two, he gives us an example of the ungodly life, which is what we talked about a few weeks ago. And now for this evening, we're starting our fourth main section. That is the promises for the godly life. That's the overarching primary theme of this book. And we'll talk of this chapter rather, and we'll talk about some of those promises in the next few weeks. But tonight he calls us back to this overall call to be godly. And he says, this is not new information that I'm writing to you. I'm repeating myself again because it's that important. And so if we're going to be steadfast and not fall away and not be carried away, not be associating ourselves with the unbelievers, this is what we need to remember because in the first few verses, he says, remember, remember, I'm reminding you of something. So the first thing to remember is your identity, your steadfastness, in godliness relies on your identity, remembering who you are. And we get that from the beginning of verse one. This is now beloved. Beloved. This is not the first time that Peter uses the word beloved. He uses it four times in this chapter. Verse one, verse eight, verse 14, and verse 17. He used it twice in the first book. Chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 12. In other words, he uses the term beloved to identify an audience that is distinct from the unbeliever. It's those who are loved by God. It's those who love one another. It's those who belong to God. And he says, I've written this to you before, my beloved. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you. In other words, he says, go back and look at my first letter to get the full picture. And that's how we know. That's one of the ways we know that Peter wrote 2 Peter and 1 Peter because he confesses to writing a second letter. And he wants us through his writings, verse one again, to be stirred up in our sincerity of mind. That our minds would be pure. That's the idea here. He wants us to go back and remember and to have pure minds. He's expressing a concern that Paul had in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We find Paul who's afraid. And we know Paul seemingly completely fearless, beaten times without number, imprisoned multiple times, stoned to death, shipwrecked, went hungry, was abandoned by his friends, was accused by his own disciples and followers, slandered against. He suffered so much evil and so much hardship and nothing stopped him from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet in chapter 11, verse three of 2 Corinthians, it's, he says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The same concern that Peter had, Paul had for his respective followers. That something can actually draw you away from simple, pure, total, not hypocritical devotion to Jesus Christ. And so Peter comes back and says, 
That's why I'm writing this to you. So that your minds would be pure. And whatever I need to say, I'm going to stir up your minds toward that purity. He said something similar back in the first chapter of the first book. In verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. What does that look like? Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. In other words, sobriety of mind, being ready with a pure mind, results in a life that says no to lusts. And that's the whole point of chapter two. And then again in chapter three. So how do we defeat our temptations? By having a mind that is fully devoted to Christ, that is simple, pure, unadulterated in its commitment to Jesus Christ. And that goes back to the foundation of understanding our identity, that we are different. We get that from the first letter in chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to this. Beloved, the first time he uses that, uh, that term to describe his readers. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. Again, beloved as an address, a term of an address is paired with a life that says no to lust, that pursues godliness. And so now he says, beloved. It's a term of familial affection. The first Christians used it often. You'll find it all over the New Testament, outside the New Testament, because it's a reminder that you're different. And therefore, in verse 12 of chapter 2, you keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. You're not like them. Because you are saved. Because you are beloved. So remember your identity. And that will sustain you and keep you steadfast in pursuit of godliness. And secondly, remember prior revelation. Remember your identity. And secondly, remember prior revelation, which takes us into the second verse. So he's all about reminding us of something that he previously wrote about. And now verse two, you should remember what? The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. This is the hedge against uh, seduction from the world by directing our minds to prior revelation, we will be protected. By understanding the commandment of the Lord, what was written by the holy prophets, and what was spoken by previous apostles. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, about the foundation of the church? He said, this is what the foundation of the church is. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Both of them are referenced in our text. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. All three groups are represented in Ephesians 2.20. They're represented in 2 Peter 3.2. In other words, they had the same understanding of what will sustain your life. It's the prophets of the Old Testament, their writings. It's Jesus' commandments. And it's the apostles whose job was to proclaim what Jesus taught. How do we know that that is what their responsibility was? Well, do you remember Jesus' final words in Matthew chapter 28? Some of you have it memorized. This is your time to show off. All authority has been given to me. On heaven and on earth. Some of you are mumbling. You can cheat. You got a Bible. So because all authority has been given to him on heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples, right? Baptizing them. And what? Verse 20, teaching teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So Jesus' final words to his 12 disciples, or 11 at that point, was your job is to proclaim what I taught, everything that I taught. So Peter picks up on that same theme. Look, the commandments of Jesus, and then the apostles were faithful to fulfill Matthew 28. That is what will sustain you and keep you steadfast. That's what he's saying. And this is not the first time Peter talked about all this. Go back to chapter one of second Peter. The very end of chapter one is all about what? We weren't following cleverly devised tales. Instead, what did we do? We had the prophetic word with us, verse 19. It is reliable, more reliable than our experience. And then verse 20 explains what kind of 
prophetic word it is. It's not a matter of your own imagination and interpretation. Instead, it comes from the Holy Spirit as man spoke from God. So now he explains the character of this prophecy. That is, it comes from God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says something similar in reference to the Old Testament. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now in these last days, he spoke to us in his son. So in other words, there's a contrast. The Old Testament, it's prophecies, men of God. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ shows up and now he has the commandment and he says of himself, God sent me. I've only come to do what God tells me to do. I'm here to communicate God's truth. And of course, in the first letter of 1 Peter, in verses 10 through 12, Peter talks about these prophets also. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, that's the apostles, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We spend a whole week or two perhaps even on those few verses because of the depth of what it means to have access to the prophets. They were trying to figure out who is the Messiah and when he's coming. We on the other side of the cross and ascension, get to know who he is and when he came and why he came and what the future will look like with him. So Peter is focused on the only authority that the Christian has for his or her life, that is the prophets, what Jesus taught, and then what the apostles continued to proclaim after Jesus left. And so when these false teachers, these mockers come, this is what they are undermining. This is what they're denying, the Holy Scripture. And they're not denying something that is invented by Peter or Jude. Peter and Jude, 2 Peter and Jude are very similar. If you've been reading 2 Peter, you should certainly read Jude alongside it because there's a lot of overlap. Most likely Jude came first and then 2 Peter But what they're denying, verse 3, in the last days, mockers will come and they're mocking. So they're not denying something new. They're denying the prophets of old. They're denying Jesus' teaching and they're denying the apostles' teaching between Jesus and the writing of 2 Peter. And Jesus himself talks about the second coming. In Mark 13, 23, he says, Beware, behold, I have told you everything in advance. So Jesus multiple times told his disciples about the future, about his return. Not when, but signs of his return. It wasn't a surprise to them that Jesus was going to come back. But these false teachers were denying something that was orthodox Christianity. Orthodox teaching from Jesus and his followers. And that takes us to our third division for this evening. The way we stand steadfast is we remember our identity. We remember the prior revelation that we have in front of us in scripture. And third, we remember God's judgment. And that's verses three through seven. We remember God's judgment. And when those three come together, then we will be steadfast. Look at verse three and four. Know this first of all that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The idea of being a mocker was the supreme act of dishonor and disgrace against somebody else in the ancient world. And that would bring shame upon the person mocking. It wasn't something you do lightly. You really had to have a good reason and evidence to mock somebody. And so these arrogant individuals, as we saw in chapter 2, are mocking. And guess what they're doing? They're mocking the coming of Christ. 
And in doing so, they are exaggerating history, aren't they? They're saying since, since the, de- the day of the death of the fathers. Now that's Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the fathers. So since their death, the death of those three individuals is in Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 25, chapter 35, and chapter 49. Okay, Abraham dies in 25, Isaac in 35, and then Jacob in 49. So they go back and say, okay, look, since Genesis, the middle of Genesis 25, where's Jesus? He's not around. That's what they're going back and they're saying, I can prove to you historically that nothing has changed, that he hasn't come back. Since the days of the prophets, we keep hearing about judgment. And nothing has happened. In other words, they're deists, right? They go back and and affirm that the prophets existed, verse 4, the beginning of creation. That's their affirmation. So they believe that God created like a deist. But then they basically say God stepped back and the world is doing whatever it's doing and God is not intervening. Because all these warnings, all these prophecies have not come to pass. That's their claim. And then Peter responds in verse 5. For when they maintain this, so when they mock in this way, it escapes their notice that the word of God, so he goes back to the only authoritative source. The word of God, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So they go back to Genesis 25 and Peter goes back to Genesis 1. He outdoes them said, fine, my argument will precede your argument in chronological order. I'm going to take you all the way back to Genesis 1, creation. Since the beginning of creation, everything that has existed exists by the word of God. Because we talked about the word, right? The word of Jesus, the commandments of Jesus, the word of the prophets. Verse 2 talks about this. So the idea of the word is extremely important and repetitive in chapter 2 and chapter 3 back in the first book, because it forms the foundation of this argument, but also for what we trust. And so he says, by the word of God, and actually in verse five, the word of God, that phrase appears at the very end of the verse. Because in ancient writings, whatever came at the beginning or at the end is emphatic. It says, pay attention to this. This is more important than the other stuff in the verse. And so he puts it at the very end by saying the word of God. That's what I'm asking you to remember and to go back to. God said, remember Genesis 1? What did God say first? Let there be light. And then God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Over and over and over, Genesis 1 until verse 31, God looked at everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So God said the word of God is what gives us the authority to believe that what the Bible says is true. He goes back to the same, the actual thing that they deny as ever coming to pass. The creation of the universe and its judgment rests on the word of God. Now, whenever at Hebrews 1, in verse 1, it says that God spoke in the past through the prophets. And then verse 3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, God, very God, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So God used Jesus, the Father used the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, to create everything. We know that from Genesis, from John 1, 1, from Colossians 1. Hebrews 1. So the second member, Jesus, created everything by speaking it into existence. That's the word of God. And then, did you catch this? By the word of God, verse 5, everything was formed out of water and by water. And he, verse 3 of Hebrews 1, sustains everything by his word. Why? Verse 7. By his word. The same word that created, the same word that sustains, is the same word 
that is keeping the present heavens and earth as being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The same word is actually preserving everything in this universe for one purpose, to burn it all. Just think about that. Jesus is making everything operate. And the sun rises and the earth revolves and the moon shines and the stars shine and the oceans stop at the right place and the animals breathe and you breathe and I breathe so that he can ultimately destroy it all. That's what verse 7 says. He's sustaining it by his word to judge it and to destroy it. And if you look at verses 5 and 6, that is in direct contradiction to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, right? They deny that judgment has ever happened. And yet in the previous chapter, he talks about judgment of the angels and of Noah, the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're saying since creation, nothing has ever been judged by God. But he's already talked about judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, that was the very first example of cataclysmic judgment, an example of God's judgment on this world. And he appeals to the same word. And now he says, they are being reserved, heavens and earth, for judgment by fire in verse 7. Listen to some of the Old Testament passages you can follow along on the predictions about future judgment. Isaiah 66, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Daniel 7, 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set and the books were opened. And if you look at the continuation of that prophecy, it's in Revelation 21 and 22, the books are opened and everybody's judged. Fire, 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 fire. Micah 1.4. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. Malachi 4.1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Matthew 3, New Testament. As for me, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Second Thessalonians 1, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. This is when Jesus comes back. And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's the Old Testament or the Gospels or the Pauline epistles, the prophecy is the same. There is a future judgment and it is characterized by fire. And so Peter teaches the same thing in verse 7. The heavens and the earth is reserved for fire. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. In other words, Peter now says, let me remind you three times of the same exact truth. The world will end by fire. And Jesus is sustaining it until that moment. I hope that makes you a little bit more serious about our future. That if you're ever tempted to be godless, the ultimate 
doom of those who are pursuing godlessness is a fiery judgment. That's what Peter's trying to say here. And we don't even fully understand the creation that we are a part of. Just Wednesday, first time ever, the scientists have taken a picture of the black hole in the Milky Way galaxy. How many of you read about this? It's pretty cool, right? I mean, first time. I don't know how many decades we've been trying to figure out the black holes, right? All light bends around the black hole. The gas is just whipping around. But get this. The black hole in the Milky Way galaxy is a thousand times smaller than the other one that we know about in M87. I don't even know what that means, but it's M87. Okay, it's another galaxy with another black hole that's a thousand times bigger. And still, the Milky Way's black hole is four million times bigger than our sun. And it's a thousand times smaller than the other black hole. And the picture that they took is this. That's very clear, isn't it? That's the best we can do right now with all our advancement, all the technology. That's the best picture we could take. And this is not a bad graphic. You can go online and it looks exactly this way. But get this, the project to take this picture, it took five years, a hundred million hours of supercomputer time to get to this picture. Five years. Guys, we don't understand creation. We don't understand the fire that will ultimately consume creation because we can't even get a clear picture of a black hole. That's the distance between God and his ability and us. And Pastor John wrote about black holes in his own time when he wrote about Second Peter. I don't know how many decades ago that was, but trust me, more has evolved since then. He says this, for example, the galaxies consist of billions of burning stars. Even the earth's core contains a huge volume of molten rock that may be as hot as 12,400 degrees Fahrenheit. Only a 10-mile thick crust separates humanity from the Earth's blazing interior. More significantly, the entire creation, because of its basic atomic structure, is a nuclear bomb. The devastating power of nuclear weapons demonstrates the destructive force God has placed within the atom. When he's ready, God will use that kind of nuclear energy in an atomic holocaust that will disintegrate the universe. That's what Peter is writing about. This future fiery destruction and this is what the godless mockers reject. Where is his coming? Nothing has ever changed since Genesis 25. They skipped Genesis 7, 8, 9, the flood. But do you get this? That the reason that Jesus is sustaining the universe with one word, to destroy it, is because of sin. That's why. That's it. It's because of sin. The universe was cursed because of what happened in Genesis 3.6. The universe wasn't cursed after Genesis 6.5, which says, when the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then God said, cursed be the ground. No. Between Genesis 3.6 and 6.5, many people lived, many people sinned, such that 6.5 says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God cursed this universe after Genesis 3.6. After Eve took a bite. And from that moment, Jesus has been sustaining the universe to burn it. That is how serious sin is. Compare it to the magnitude of the devastation after one 
sin. And if we understand sin through that lens, then I hope we would take it a little bit more seriously in our own lives. Because since Genesis 3, Romans 8 says, creation is groaning until it will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. That makes me feel sorry for creation. It's groaning. It's suffering. It's entrapped. It's suffering the pain of childbirth, or less Corey Bush says, birthing people. That's the imagery. And from what I know, that's not a very pleasant experience to birth people. But that's what Paul says. You want to understand what's happening in the universe right now in response to your sin? It's groaning. It's enslaved. It's corrupt because of a single sin. Guys, every single sin deserves death. It deserves judgment. It deserves destruction. And in order to give man grace and patience, we'll look at that next time, and salvation, God cursed creation. And it's been suffering since Genesis 3, only to be destroyed. And creation wants to be free. And it knows when the sons of man are transformed into the likeness of Christ, then the creation's groaning will end. I hope that truly makes you want to say, I don't want to pursue godlessness. I don't want to pursue my lusts. I don't want to pursue my sins. Because even the smallest sin in Genesis 3, 6 resulted in the destruction, future destruction of all of creation. And verse 7 says it very clearly. He is keeping it for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men, coming back to godliness. Not just creation, but all those who pursue godlessness. And the terminology that Peter uses is actually the terminology for a treasure. God is keeping creation like a treasure to destroy it. You protect your treasure. You keep it safe. You don't have anybody mess with it, interfere with it. God says judgment will come. That's the imagery. God doesn't delight in it. That's not the point of using the word treasure. The point is to say God is going to make sure it happens. As much as protection you offer to what you prize and value, God will make sure that this universe that is being kept for judgment will actually experience judgment because of man's sin. The writers who wrote around the same time as 2 Peter was written, talk about the same thing. There's a man named Philo, who's a Jewish theologian. And he said, God has two types of treasure. On one hand, there's the treasure, the good treasure, the heavens. On the other hand, he's got the treasure where evil is stored. And there he will have a day of vengeance, it says. There's more writings from the time of the first century, from the time of the second Peter, not in the Bible, that speak of the same thing. They were reading, thinking, writing, and understanding that there's coming a judgment day and God will make sure it takes place. Well, get this. Verse 7. The heavens and the earth is kept for the day of judgment. Every single time Peter uses that word in 2 Peter, it always refers to judgment. He uses that word once in 1 Peter. And this is how he uses it. 1 Peter 1.4. We will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, kept 
in heaven for you. That's the great contrast. God is keeping two things. One, he's keeping the judgment of the ungodly in the future and all of creation. On the other hand, he's keeping an inheritance for you. And Peter wants you to get that contrast, the stark contrast. That's why he uses the same word once positively, four times negatively. So you would get it. If you are his, if you're saved, if you're elect, if you've been forgiven, God is also keeping something for you. An inheritance, undefiled, imperishable, eternal, in heaven with your name on it. But if you're not a believer, if you haven't repented from your sin, if you haven't come to Christ and says, I understand that I've lived a godless life. I've pursued my own sin. I've done whatever I wanted to do. And all of that is not pleasing to you. But I want to be done with this because of what the Bible calls us to do. Repent. There's coming a day that he will judge everything through one man, Jesus Christ. And because of that coming judgment, I'd like to repent and ask you for forgiveness for my sins. If you've done that, then God has forgiven you. God promises that he will forgive you of every single sin that you've ever committed and will commit. If you ask him for forgiveness. And then there is no keeping of judgment for you. There's only a keeping of an eternal reward for you. And it is as much of a treasure that he keeps for you as he keeps the treasure of judgment for the ungodly in this creation. And it comes down to that simple difference. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ? And are you pursuing godliness? And are you steadfast in that pursuit? And what will keep you steadfast and firm and not wavering is to remember who you are, your beloved. It's to remember that you've been given revelation and you go back to it to reaffirm your faith and to help you be faithful. And you remember that judgment is coming on the godless. And those truths will keep you steadfast. And I'd like to end with another prayer from the Valley of Vision that reflects these truths. Almost high God. The universe with all its myriad creatures is thine, made by thy word, upheld by thy power, and you can add for judgment, governed by thy will. But thou art also the father of mercies, the God of all grace, the bestower of all comfort, the protector of the saved. Thou has been mindful of us, has visited us, preserved us, given us a godly heritage, the holy scriptures, the joyful gospel, the savior of souls. We come to thee in Jesus' name. Make mention of his righteousness only. Plead his obedience and sufferings, who magnified the law both in its precepts and penalty and made it honorable. May we be justified by his blood, saved by his life, joined to his spirit. Let us take up his cross and follow him. May the agency of thy grace prepare us for thy dispensations. Make us willing that thou shouldst choose our inheritance and determine what we shall retain or lose, suffer or enjoy. If blessed with prosperity, may we be free from its snares and use, not abuse its advantages. May we patiently and cheerfully submit to those afflictions which are necessary. When we're tempted to wander, hedge up our way. Excite in us abhorrence of sin. Wean us from the present evil world. Assure us that we shall at last enter Emmanuel's land, where none is ever sick and the sun always shines. That's the future. That's what's coming next in chapter three. Until then, this prayer says, keep me faithful. Keep me following. Keep me godly. And I hope that's what you want. Lord God, we, as this prayer says, need this power of the Holy Spirit, your mercies that will hedge us against the entrapments of this world. Pray for us that 
struggle, so much in this world that is attractive and appeals to us. We see it and so we want it. We forget the inheritance that awaits us. Pray that the first seven verses of this chapter would sober us up and remind us of the coming judgment and remind us of the gravity of sin and what you'll do to the entire universe because of a single sin. Lord God, keep us fighting, keep us following, keep us faithful until we enter heaven. Help us to think often on heaven because that is our eternal destiny. Pray this to the honor of Jesus Christ, the one who opened the gates to heaven. Amen.